It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. It broadcasts at 1.38 a.m. from the very center of hell. October Pod. Finally, a retro horror show which offers to bold individualists a look into the maddening space between nightmare and nostalgia. True horror stories and found footage beyond anything you've tested. October Pod. Offered by OctoberPodVHS.com. In black and white and color. Caution. To avoid fainting, keep repeating. It's only on YouTube. Only on YouTube. Only on YouTube. Only on YouTube. Stream as much as you can. Good evening, friends. I'm your host, Emma, and you are listening to the True Crime Witch Podcast. The podcast that takes you into everything murderous, mysterious, and downright macabre. If you like what you hear, please give me a five-star rating on iTunes, and follow me on all of my social media, which will be linked below in the show notes. I also have a Patreon for those who want to make contributions to the podcast and help make this my full-time job. I'm eternally grateful for you all, whether you financially contribute or just listen. This episode contains graphic content and listener discretion is advised. With that in mind, let's get into the episode. Forty-year-old Diane Louise Algert left her home on the 1000 block of Chesapeake Drive in Odessa, Florida on April 10th, 1998. Diane was spotted a day later walking along US-19 in Hudson, Florida. This would be the start of one of the most bizarre and twisted missing person cases to ever come out of Florida. This is episode 42, The Disappearance of Diane Louise Algert. Like any good story, let's start at the beginning, shall we? Diane was born on February 21st, 1958, to parents James and Mildred Young. There's not a whole lot of information about Diane's childhood or teenage years, but we do know that she married Frederick Algar in the 1970s, taking on his surname. The newlyweds seemed like the perfect couple, but their marriage soon began to unravel. In her early 30s, Diane began exhibiting strange behaviour 
and after her family and friends pleaded with her to speak to a doctor, she was formally diagnosed with bipolar disorder, which in the 1980s was just known as manic depressive disorder. Sadly, this diagnosis was just the beginning of Diane's downward spiral. In 1988, Diane's children were taken away from her and placed into protective custody after healthcare workers were concerned that one of her children was the possible victim of Munchausen by proxy. The children were removed from Diane's care and sent to live with her husband, Frederick. This did nothing to help Diane, or her marriage, or her mental health, and by 1991, she and Frederick had formally divorced with Frederick having full custody of their children due to the um, the court order. After her marriage broke down and she lost custody of her three children, Diane's life went into a downward spiral. As a result, Diane began drinking heavily and taking drugs. In one news article, her brother-in-law said, quote, She hangs out with whoever will be her friend. She's sick. You can't deal with her when she's as manic as she is. She gets up in your face and doesn't shut up. She's constantly talking about herself. You can tell right away that she's ill. End quote. After being arrested and institutionalised several times, Diane's sister, Deborah Cronin, reached out to her and said that she could stay with her until she got on her feet again. Little did her sister know that Diane would mysteriously vanish from this very house. Now, Diane had been arrested under the Baker Act 32 times and the Baker Act is an act that allows a police officer or a judge to make a decision on whether someone needs to be sent for a medical or psychiatric examination. Diane had recently been released from an institution, but things seemed to settle down and being around family and having a good routine did Diane a world of good. That was until the morning of April 10th, 1998. A witness reported seeing Diane walking north on US-19 near New York Avenue in Hudson, Florida, a day later on April 11th, 1998. Diane was never seen again, but she was heard from again. Three days after she officially went missing, on April 13th, her mother, Mildred Young, received a chilling answerphone message. Diane had tried to call her mother, but no one was home to answer the call. Instead, Mildred was left with a terrifying message. In the voicemail, Diane is heard saying, quote, Help! He- help! Let me out! End quote. Whilst a scuffle and struggle can be heard as if someone is trying to take the phone away from her. Diane's last words were, hey, give me that, before the line went silent. Mildred Young went into a state of shock, knowing that her daughter had gone missing just three days earlier. She immediately phoned the police and reported the call and the voicemail. Police were able to trace the call to a business called Starlight in Odessa, Florida. But when they called that number again, they were simply met with silence and there were quite a few businesses called Starlight in Odessa, and they couldn't really pinpoint which one it was. Diane's family waited, and waited, for what seemed like a lifetime, and by April 16th, the police had more news for them. 
but sadly, it wasn't the news that they had been hoping for. On April 15th, a woman walking along US-19, where Diane was last seen, discovered a severed right finger. Police were called to the scene a day later after the woman who initially discovered it didn't believe that the finger was real and all some sort of sick practical joke. After telling her boyfriend, she went to the police and he had managed to convince her that it could be some sort of important clue, like regardless of how the finger was lost, clearly that's not um, normal or right. The finger was determined to be from a woman's right middle finger and the fingernail had been painted bright red. After being taken in for further analysis, police were able to confirm through fingerprint records that the severed finger did, in fact, belong to the missing woman, Diane Louise Algott. Diane had been in trouble with the police many times before as a result of her drug and alcohol use, and subsequently they had her fingerprints on record, and I can't imagine how much longer that would have taken had her fingerprints not been on record. The discovery immediately hit the news with the Tampa Tribune running an article about it in their Saturday, April 10th, 1998 edition. The article can be found on page 13 with the headline of Police Seek Missing Woman and I will read you the article now in its entirety. A piece of a finger found along US-19 apparently belongs to a mentally ill woman missing for a week, Sheriff Spokesman John Powers said Friday. The department seeks the public's help in locating Diane Augert, 40, of 1700 Chesapeake Drive, Odessa. Powers said that there's the distinct possibility of foul play, although detectives believe there's at least a remote chance a cruel joke is being played. When she did not take her medication, her personality would change, and during these bouts she was known to hang out with a pretty rough crowd, Powers said. He noted that her previous disappearances only lasted a day or two. A woman walking to work about 4pm on Wednesday found what she thought to be part of a finger by the side of US-19 near New York Avenue. The nail was polished. The woman at first thought the finger was fake, but mentioned it to her boyfriend. The next day he found the finger, although his description differed. That led detectives to look for two fingers. Only one was found. Using fingerprints comparisons, technicians traced the finger to Argo. Algot's mother, Mildred Young, had called the sheriff's office on April 11th to report her daughter missing. Algot left her sister's house on Cobblestone Drive in Hudson around 11am on April 10th. Algot was last seen a couple of hours later near the Hayloft Bar at State 52 Road and Little Road. She apparently did not have a vehicle. She either hitchhiked or got rides from friends. Augit's family clings to hope that she may be alive. Her mother, Mildred Young, said, She always said she had a guardian angel. I wonder if she still has that guardian angel. It was her favourite expression. Now, Diane's story only gets more bizarre from here on out, and two weeks after she was last seen, a bag of her belongings was found inside of an outdoor freezer at a totally convenience store, now, according to some sources, mainly Reddit, this is the shop that Diane had worked at before her disappearance. Inside the bag were items of Diane's clothing, with her family confirming to police that these definitely belonged to her. There was no way that these belonged to anyone else. 
Her sister Deborah commented that she immediately recognised the items as that they were clothes that she had recently given to her. The owner of the shop was questioned but was unable to provide anything of use to police. The main question that her family and everyone else has is, why in the freezer? Diane's disappearance makes little sense to begin with, but this detail really is just bizarre. Is this someone taunting the police and her family? Or is Diane perhaps in danger and trying to, you know, feed evidence and clues back to her family wherever she can? Is this, you know, has she been perhaps trafficked? Is this her way of sneaking clues back to her family? I, I don't know. Now, this part, this next part, should I say, isn't directly linked to Diane's disappearance, but it is a spooky coincidence nonetheless. Just days after she went missing, her house was broken into, but police have not revealed what, if anything, was taken. Whether they just don't know, or they're keeping their cards close to their chest, is of course unknown. It has been postulated, though, that this robbery was committed by kids in the area who were probably just looking for uh, things to sell for, like, you know, fags, booze, drugs, or just something to do, or maybe trying to scare Diane. The next big break in Diane's case came in November 2000, two and a half years since she had mysteriously vanished. The details of this next discovery make me believe that someone out there is purposefully planting evidence as a way of taunting law enforcement and Diane's family. Terry Wilson, who is Diane's brother's girlfriend, walked into the Circle K store located on US 19, you know, the very road that Diane was last seen on, and she made a shocking discovery. As she was standing, you know, at the counter, waiting to pay, she noticed a Ziploc bag with the name of Diane scribbled on the front in permanent marker. Inside was a tube of pink lipstick, black eyeliner, a tube of toothpaste, which was the same brand of toothpaste that Diane had been given at the mental institution, where she was released from literally just days or weeks before going missing, and a bottle of taboo perfume. Terry Wilson just immediately snatched the bag off the counter and took it to Mildred, who's Diane's mother. Mildred's face just went white as if she'd just seen a ghost, and she confirmed that these two did belong to Diane. By this point, her family were desperate for answers and wondering who could be evil enough to taunt them like this. Now, Diane's family are insistent that these 100% belong to her, However, law enforcement says that they have no evidence that they belong to her whatsoever and that they're just generic items. But, if these aren't Diane's items, it seems like an awfully odd coincidence that her brother's girlfriend would walk into like a corner shop convenience store on the road where she went missing and discover things that Diane was known to have, such as the toothpaste from the mental institution and the taboo perfume which she liked to wear. It just seems a bit odd to me that that's not purposeful by someone. There is a four day period where Diane was spotted or at least heard from. On April 10th, a bartender reported seeing her at the Hayloft Tavern on Little Road and State Road 52 
and on April 13th, a waitress at the Inn on the Gulf reported seeing Diane eating a meal. So where had Diane been between April 10th and April 13th? And why hadn't she contacted her family, obviously aside from the worrying phone call? It doesn't appear that Diane was with anyone at the time of the sightings, but that doesn't rule out foul play. I mentioned a four-day period as between April 11th and April 14th, Diane was apparently seen at the Coral Sands Motel on US 19 and Maryland Avenue. Here we have not one, not two, but three sightings of Diane between April 10th and April 14th, yet literally little to no other information as to her whereabouts. What's even more interesting is that the 52-year-old Gary Robert Evers, the owner of the Coral Sands Motel, is a suspect in the disappearance of Diane. In 2001, Evers was arrested and charged with the murder of 26-year-old Todd Cammers. On June 27, 2001, Gary Evers and his girlfriend, Rose Casper, were awoken at 4am by two masked gunmen who had broken into the motel. It seems that robbery wasn't their only motive as they beat Rose with a pistol, like pistol whipped her in the side of the head, but backed off, you know, once Gary burst into the room all guns blazing. Instead of calling the police, Gary Evers decided to take matter into his own hands. No doubt because, at least in my mind, it feels like they were probably involved in some shady business. Gary called 26-year-old Todd Cammers and asked him to step into his office for just a moment. Now, Gary was convinced that the 26-year-old was behind the break-in and um, proceeded to shoot him multiple times in the face and chest. Gary wasn't very smart about the whole ordeal as a witness saw everything and immediately called the police. Gary was arrested and charged with the murder of Todd Cammers, who, until the very end, protested his innocence. Sadly, just months after Todd was brutally murdered in cold blood, two men were arrested and charged with the robbery of the motel. Gary Evers was found guilty and sentenced to life in prison without parole, but has maintained his innocence in regards to the disappearance of Diane Algott. Police have never revealed why Gary is a suspect, so I suspect that they know more than they are willing to make public and obviously want to keep their cards close to their chest. People on Reddit have noted that Diane's finger was found a block away from the motel, but that's not really enough evidence to consider someone a suspect in a case. You probably need something a bit more concrete. Since the arrest of Gary Evers, there have been no updates in Diane's case. The trail has gone cold and now police and Diane's family are asking for your help. Diane Louise Alga is described as a white female with dark blonde hair and blue eyes. She has a scar on her abdomen, pierced ears and tattoos on her back and right shoulder. Um, I will put pictures of what Diane looks like, her tattoos and distinguishing marks up on my Instagram, my Facebook, my Twitter, um, my Tumblr, my website. I'll put them everywhere so if you need them for reference. She was last seen wearing a white tank top, blue shorts and blue trainers. Diane suffers from bipolar disorder and also struggles with drug and alcohol addiction. If still alive today, Diane Albert would be 63 years old. 
If you have any information, you are asked to contact the Pasco County Sheriff's Office on 800 854 2862. Remember, no piece of information is too small or too insignificant. Please help bring Diane home to her family. That was this week's episode. I apologise that I have been slightly absent, but I'm back and I'm on the roll again. So you can find me on all of my social media. As I said, um, I'll have everything linked in the show notes. All of my source material and information will be linked in the show notes. All of the newspaper articles that I used. And um, yeah, I'll catch you on the flip side in two weeks when we have a new episode. If you have anything that you want to like suggest or anything, just drop me an email, drop me a tweet. Other than that, I have nothing to say, but stay safe and stay spooky. Ryan here and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like are you a fist pumper, a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver? I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino-style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly plus free daily bonuses, so don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW report prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18+. Plus.